Uh, hello, comrades and friends. This is Rob from the Highlands Bunker Studio. It's in the shadow of Rockford Tower, and it's operating, as ever, surrounded by some of the biggest aiders of and abettors to rank capitalist exploitation in the country. The absolute creme de la creme of money movers, rubber stampers, and press release writers are all around us, but we see you all. Uh, Carl, adhering to current field orders, is producing remotely from across the Brandywine. Uh, before I introduce our esteemed guests and begin our conversation about a Green New Deal for Delaware, uh, I wanted to mention some news. While many of our uh, favorite spots are struggling to stay afloat or have already closed due to the pandemic, uh, our friends at Two Stones Brewery are back up and operating at 50% capacity uh, and under appropriate protocols. Uh, part of the protocols include the resumption of our friend and patron Greg delivering uh, beer to Nurse Susan and me. So yesterday I got the old reliable mix and match, uh, Delco Lager and Two Stones Pilsner. That's my jam. Uh, Susan got a special pink 16-ounce can of something called Pony Girl. Uh, it's the Pony Boy Light Lager, but with a touch of coconut. Um, so if you're into beer or you're into coconut beverages that allegedly pair well with crabs, uh, try to go local, try to go independent, Two Stones Brewery, uh, whatever they don't drink, they can. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Two Stones. Uh, our first guest uh, today is Professor Victor Perez. Dr. Perez is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Delaware. His areas of expertise include environmental justice and its health outcomes. Uh, I am happy to welcome, uh, for the first time, uh, Professor Perez to the Highlands Bunker podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Cool. Uh, and our uh, returning champion, uh, she is an assistant policy analyst at the Biden Institute at the University of Delaware, where she's working on her master's in public policy and administration. And she is currently a candidate for Delaware State Representative from the 26th District, Medina Wilson-Anton. Medina, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's get right into it. A Green New Deal for Delaware. Uh, it's time to take climate seriously in the lowest lying state in the nation. Um, your paper lays out a very clear and convincing case regarding the threat to climate of the threat of climate change. Um, and it's an ambitious policy agenda to match the occasion. Um, can you just uh, maybe give us a summary um, and uh, talk about what makes our state particularly unique in this case? Sure, yeah. So our plan basically has four main sections. The first um, is focused on setting a bold plan to move to renewables. The second focuses more on economic justice and the importance of centering any environmental policy around um, working people and communities that are most affected by climate change. And then the last two focus on ensuring that all Delawareans have the right to a clean environment and then protecting our natural resources. Um, as far as Delaware goes, we are actually the lowest lying state in the country. And so we've already seen a lot of the effects of sea level rise um, and extreme weather. We're also dealing with a lot of invasive species, which we can get into more later. But um, we, we have a unique situation in Delaware. So it's really important that we are on the forefront of bold climate change policy. Excellent. Um, so before we get into the details, uh, Professor Perez, uh, hello again and welcome. Uh, I, I often considered um, that the creation of the long-awaited wetland area in Southbridge uh, and in an attempt to ameliorate uh, the, the flooding that that neighborhood has had for decades and decades, um, the fact that that has finally been complete or uh, and, and the corresponds with the completion of a basketball arena and a sports complex by Buccini Pollen Group in, near that neighborhood. I, I can't think as a coincidence. Um, but I, I noticed that um, you had a lecture series uh, and it was it was titled Why Place Matters. I, I took it as, a, as an homage to Dr. West's famous anthology Race Matters, but I assume that was intentional and that um, the place really does matter in these cases. Uh, Medina mentioned that part of the paper is um, to make sure that working communities and um, the most vulnerable communities um, are are thought of in this policy. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Why why place matters? Sure. Uh, well, in a nutshell, when we think about the problems that are associated with uh, health, with climate change impacts, 
much of them have to do with racial residential segregation and uh, zoning, for example, where you can find communities that are adjacent to industry. And racial residential segregation is also uh, crucial because you concentrate people together, generally folks who are uh, minoritized and who lack resources. And so those communities become um, generational areas where you uh, lack access to healthcare, good food, green space, education, and so forth. So you can think about it uh, in terms of zip codes. Now, that's not necessarily uh, the cleanest way to think about, say, health differences, average lifespan, or or outcomes like that, asthma rates, cancer rates, whatever it might be, but think about how one zip code, just a handful of miles away from another zip code, could have dramatically different health outcomes, and that's why we talk about place matters. So, in in terms of your point about the wetland in South Wilmington, it's a a really good one. Uh, that's a revitalized wetland that's being cleaned up and turned into a city park and the park will provide access to not only the community of Southbridge, but also people on the other side, on the west side of South Wilmington. So it'll be a green space that's walkable. It'll connect uh, Southbridge to the riverfront. And there's a lot of positives associated with green space. And there's also some negatives that are associated with green space that we tend not to uh, talk about, but we're starting to learn more about, such as uh, the way that if you take an environmental disamenity like the wetland used to be, and they turn it into an environmental amenity, which it is going to be as a city park, uh, it can increase property values all around it and incur uh, displacement of the original community that was there, bearing the burdens of uh, flooding and other sorts of uh, legacy toxics. So place matters because you know the social and the spatial uh, interact. Uh, where you are or where social processes unfold, and you can see that uh, from zip code to zip code. Yeah, I want to follow up on that because that's, uh, you know, that's something, you know, we talk about a lot about, um, you know, infrastructure that's there to basically like gentrify neighborhoods and, and price out small businesses and maybe price out residents. Um, and we think about, you know, um, restaurants or uh, a fancy building of apartments. Um, but even even taking this and making it sort of a... a sort of commodifying it in some way, even though it's a, it's a wetland and a community park, sort of acts, acts the same way is what you're saying. Uh, or, it can, or, or, or I should say it, it, it can do. You mean the wetland is a, an act of commodification of the, of the green space? Uh, yes, because there, uh, and, and you mentioned something about the, the flip side being that when uh, a natural wetland that was there 100 years ago um, is 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 sort of changed or uh, made not into just a wetland, but into a space that's going to be used as a park, uh, as a way to get between neighborhoods. That actually can act as something that is going to uh, impact the neighborhood in in a way that maybe gentrification would. Or am I putting like a negative connotation on it? No, it certainly can. Uh, there's research that is called green gentrification. There is research that suggests without the appropriate policies in place before uh, green spaces are revitalized, such as policies that would mandate a certain percentage of affordable housing or policies that would uh, mandate uh, rent control. Uh, there is research that suggests green gentrification is definitely a powerful force absent of those social policies in place. That's, that's interesting. Um, Medina, I, I want to turn it to you on the political end of it because I think a way to get into some of the details of the paper and of the proposal is to sort of mention for a minute the the political sort of impact of 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 making a step like this because I noticed when the Green New Deal came out nationally one of the things that impressed me was that the solutions are really really encompass so many different aspects and so many different issues that we're trying to address and you do that in the paper too transportation jobs health um, etc um, can you talk about um, just in general tying all of those uh, tying all of those things in and, and what that means um, as leverage to the to the larger uh, project? Um, sure. So I guess one of the things that our plan calls for is to create a comprehensive plan. Um, and fun fact, I, I'm working on a master's degree, and so this spring semester, one of my courses was urban planning, and the comprehensive plan or the master plan was like the main event for that course. Um, so I actually attended a meeting as part of an assignment, but also because I was just generally interested. 
um, this spring, right before coronavirus hit, hosted by DENREC, because they're in the process of creating a comprehensive plan to move the state away from renewables or towards renewables and also um, focused on like um, uh, smart communities and like making sure that people have walkable communities and like the whole shebang. So um, one of the things that I think is important to mention is we definitely need a state response and that's what we propose in our plan, but we also need um, cooperation at the county level and at the municipal level. Um, so I know the, that Newcastle County is working on similar comprehensive plan for the county right now. Um, unfortunately, with coronavirus hitting and our state legislature not being in session for a few months and then not choosing to extend the session at all, a lot of this stuff is kind of just waiting. Unfortunately, the climate crisis is not an issue that you can afford to wait around to deal with, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know. Um, but, you know, that's our general um, approach is it's important for us to work at many levels of government. This is just the state response that we put forth, and it's important that we bring in um, all stakeholders. And one of the things that I was disappointed about when I attended the meeting was we were in the heart of Wilmington. The room was largely white, and it was pretty a pretty old population. Um, the meeting was two hours long and three hours if you got there at the beginning in time for the open house and networking part of the um, agenda. And so, you know, thinking about networking as being part of an agenda for a comprehensive plan, you can, you can kind of guess who was in the room. It was kind of a who's who of environmental activists and folks like that. It wasn't really representative of the city of Wilmington or the state for that matter. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think my opinion about all of that sort of all those political machinations is pretty well known. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of patting each other on the back and and talking. Uh, but when you know, I, I I I'm interested to start talking about renewables, and maybe this is a good time to talk about it. Um, I know your proposal um, is very is it seems fairly solar heavy. A lot of investment in solar, um, community solar, things like that. Um, I'm interested in that. I'm also interested uh, in the fact that we've tried a few times. To do some sort of uh, some sort of wind, um, you know, we just I, I think it was just recently in the past couple of weeks that a proposed sort of uh, wind farm off the coast of Fenwick Island was was nixed um, for I, I, I'm actually not sure. I, I know that there's always financial situations. I know that the technology maybe could be questioned, but I also know people just for some reason don't want to look at a windmill. Um so yeah, I'd like to start maybe talking about um, some renewables, and you can talk about uh, maybe solar first, um, Medina, and and some of the things that um, are policy proposals to sort of incent um, both the use uh, and the upkeep of solar. Sure. Um, so I just want to preface this by saying, you know, this is not I'm not an expert in like renewable energy by any stretch of the means, but um, our plan basically it just sets goals, right? And so one of the goals that it sets is to move to 100% renewable energy by 2050. Um, and right now, current law requires it um, about 25% by 2025. So that's a good start, but our plan is a little bit more bold, more visionary. Um, one of the ways that we can work on solar is by preserving and expanding the existing carve-out for solar energy. Um, Another thing that our plan calls for is the creation of a green bank, which is a way that other states like um, California and Hawaii have helped to facilitate investment in renewable energy. And this wouldn't just be focused on solar. It would be able to help fund projects that maybe research and expand in other um, types of renewable energy as well. Um, another major part of our plan is to um, expand resources that are focused on education and, and creating apprenticeships and scholarships and things like that in the renewable sector because it's really important that as we're moving towards the green economy that people that live in Delaware that are working in Delaware are trained up with the skills necessary to really reap the benefits of that. Um, so that's that's like the main gist of, of the plan on renewables. Got it. Um, 
You know, you you, you mentioned bef- before we move on. I, I do want to tr- talk about the political aspect here and sort of the makeup of the of the Denrec meeting that you went to. Uh, I'm big. I'm big on taking this to the people. You know, taking all of this stuff um, to the people and and sort of trying to get uh, a different kind of push for people who have um, other other goals other than financial feasibility or partnering with private firms. And so I'm interested, um, maybe Professor Perez. I know you you've done a lot of uh, that kind of work within the community. Um, and, and talking about impacts of the environment there. What what kind of results have you seen through your research and, and how maybe can those results be leveraged um, to sort of organize these communities and, and make this an issue that um, they think about um, impacting their, their day-to-day life? Well, uh, it's complicated. Uh, <laughs> the, research, the research that I've done along the Route 9 corridor and in South Wilmington was generally driven by the intersection between people's embodied experiences of their local environmental conditions and their perceptions of their health experiences and how those things aligned with generally public health data uh, that would come from official sources, be they epidemiological or Department of Public Health, whatever it might be. And therein lies, in a lot of ways, the main thrust of my research over time is uh, that gulf. There's often uh, a disparity between the way people perceive their health experiences in their local environment and what the uh, epidemiological or um, <clears throat> you know, more kind of official statistics uh, suggest. Uh, so if you think about walking down Newcastle Avenue from your house to catch the bus and what you might be breathing in or the dust that might be covering your car or that some people you know, were wearing face masks standing at the bus stop before COVID, uh, those sorts of experiences and how they may align or misalign with how public health data suggests um, particulate matter may impact people's health. So I, I've often tried to focus on, on that you know, gulf that is often there. It's often a stopgap. So in, in trying to bridge that gulf, we have to think about the best way to take people's embodied experiences and how they tell us about their lives to public health and try and find ways to uh, overcome those sorts of uh, problems at the community level. And uh, generally that... You know, that tends to happen when you find the validity in both forms of data. Uh, there are limitations to people's own personal experiences. There are also limitations to the way that we can create probabilities for cancer outcomes using public health data. The key in a lot of ways is to figure out where the two can meet and inform each other. And so that's, that's what I've been trying to do in my own research. And some of those ways have to do very simply with people talking about what they might see as uh, things that aren't coincidences. So for example, everybody, you know, uh, I would hear, I would, you know, copy down on our qualitative research, different quotes, like once everybody moved here, they just started to get sicker. And that might be a theme that pops up in the research. And if you compare that to public health data, it may or may not show incidences of cancer or other forms of illness being increased using those uh, particular types of tools. However, that narrative that everybody moves here and, and uh, you know, just starts to get sicker, what it can do is it can propel new questions. So it can make public health ask new questions in different ways. So instead of, for example, only looking at PM 2.5, we start to look at PM 10. Instead of looking at um, uh, the singular impacts of say a certain type of dust or emission, you look at how accumulative toxic exposure can create health issues. So something in the soil and the air taken together. So that it, you, know, you, can, you can create new questions to be asked by looking at how those two fields meet. And that's what I've tried to do. Yeah, and, and we see it again and again in the same places, as, as you mentioned, um, you know, the, the remnants of heavy industry, um, you know, there's where, where the landfills are, um, you know, where, where big trucks, you know, run to the port. You know, it just happens to be, you know, it sort of all intersects. And I think about it, and, and as you said before, it's, it's so complicated um, that sometimes it seems pretty daunting. Um, has there been, have, have, I mean, you gave a few examples of environmental stuff. Has there been anything else that you've been able to sort of push and get new types of data or, or be able to get something new that's been 
sort of uh, illustrative uh, recently? Well, I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily the only driver of these sorts of changes in, in what local scientists and others and public health agencies, regulatory agencies are looking at. But one thing I am excited about is the, you know, the reason, you know, communities have voices and the research is really just a platform for those voices. It's not providing a voice, it's just a platform for it. And if it's, you know, if the methodology is sound and if it's done with um, uh, a transparency and, and community involvement, what you can do again is sort of drive these questions to be asked by public health officials and others. And I, and I do think that some of the work has helped to do that at the county level, uh, particularly on the Route 9 communities that I've done research in. And uh, one example, and again, I'm not necessarily saying my research is the reason this is happening or not, but it at least is keeping a momentum. And one example more recently is how uh, Denrick is not only looking at uh, air toxics uh, along the Newcastle Avenue corridor, but they're also trying to figure out what they are and in so doing, being able to find out where they came from. And that's a big step towards being able to hold uh, responsible any industry that is uh, emitting these things in a way that isn't controlled or perhaps uh, not being bound by the proper environmental regulations. So that's one recent outcome that I think is really exciting is actually trying to find out where those particular uh, emissions or toxics came from. Uh, what actual type of industry, and in that regards, being able to hold more accountable to those industries. Uh, so that's that to me has been very exciting. That's a, some. It sounds very interesting. Um, okay, Medina. The one thing I wanted to ask you, and, and I'm interested in sort of um, just your general take on it, because I'm I'm generally very skeptical of the general retraining proposal. Uh, my mind always jumps right away to like the learn to code trope. Um, but sorry. Um, but, um, but I do, you know, I remembered somebody um, talking about uh, in the federal Green New Deal, the AOC Green New Deal, uh, about training folks and, and connecting that to retrofitting buildings, connecting that to building uh, affordable housing, but then also then taking over the the upkeep and maintenance of those so there's a there's a way to sort of um, connect these things but uh, yeah I'm interested if you have any sort of specific ideas um, or anything that you've read um, about just the retraining aspect and how that would be sort of sold as a piece of legislation um, I mean as far as like the politics of it go I think it's actually pretty popular and there have been proposals on other policy areas like um, for improving and expanding access to training for manufacturing, for installations, and then, like you said, maintenance, I think, is really important. Um, you know, people are going to, our economy is always changing, the world's changing, people are going to already be learning new skills and having to change jobs, things like that. Our plan's main focus is making sure that as we move towards this green economy and, like, the economy of the future, what's going to be necessary for us to just exist as a, as a civilization, as a humanity, um, that we're not leaving people out of that um, future. And one thing that I wanted to mention, um, back to what Dr. Perez was saying, he was talking kind of about one of the things that we have in our plan, which is focused on making sure that when there's new industry, that they're not just looking at what their health, um, health assessments are going to be based on that industry, but that it's an aggregate. Um, assessment, and that's actually not something that's on the books right now, which is, to me at least, it was kind of shocking. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I agree that number one, that the 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 idea of trying to pinpoint um, some of the whether they're carcinogens or just you know particles or just pollutants. Um, trying to pinpoint what those are, how they could possibly make people sick, how they could possibly be regulated in a way so people don't get sick. Um, but then again, as soon as you use the word regulation or as soon as you are trying to control things in that way, you run into just a huge political problem here. Um, we've seen it with, you know, the rollbacks of the, the Coastal Zone Act um, in, the, in the interest of, of business, really. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm wondering, I guess, 
what how, how do you do, do you think that there needs to be a bigger political push to be able to to, to find the political will that's there or do you think that uh, just a sustained effort with the data and sort of um, and sort of trying to tie it into other maybe what you would call sort of liberal programs is going to be enough I mean I think it's both I think I mean especially for an issue like this we don't really have time to you know, take it slow. So it's gonna, we're gonna need, you know, activists and environmentalists to continue to go down a leg hall and push politicians. We also need, in my opinion, to change a lot of folks that are down there and replace them with people like me who are not afraid to talk about these issues, aren't afraid of upsetting businesses when it comes to protecting people's health and things like that. So, I mean, I think it's, I think it takes all of those things. Um, and I, I do think that there are folks down in Legislative Hall who would be on the right side of history if they would if they had more um, more folks down there that were pushing them along. Like I think there are quite a few um, politicians right now that have the right politics, if you will, in quotes, but aren't willing to lead on those issues. And so, you know, it's important for people to go to the polls on September 15th and vote for folks that are going to actually push and fight for the issues that are affecting our communities. I, I, I definitely agree with that. There's no question. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, there are a handful of, of folks that are holding office right now who I think want to, in some fashion, move this forward. I don't think they're of of everything good you could say about these folks, leadership and political will isn't part of that list. Um, so yeah, I'm very excited about this batch of of progressives that are that are primarying folks in September because to me, um, you included, but a whole group of people look like real leaders and and real ambitious um, sort of uh, people who are going to to help move people along on this. Um, but I do, I do have a question that's really fundamental, and I'm wondering, you know, uh, maybe Professor Perez has some input on it too. Like this idea of time, like we, we don't, you know, that's the, the pushing, the, the crucial factor is that we can ramp this up because we do see that all the numbers point to something that's pretty catastrophic within a decade. Um, but I was, I was rereading um, a long article that was about the, it was about the tax reassessment, actually. It wasn't. Um, in, environmental or, or, or uh, it had nothing, none of these issues uh, mentioned in, in it but part of the part of the investigation was talking about some of these brand new sort of coastal McMansions um, that have been put down you, you know what I'm talking like in Bethany and all of these places and, and of course they get, um, they get pref they're getting preferential tax rates now because of where they are but they literally need to build you know build their own sort of way to put them there because they're right on the coast and it seems like almost like affluent people assume that you know whatever resources are there are going to be leveraged so they don't really prioritize action um so it's almost like when i see something like that i wonder whether everybody agrees with just the fundamental time piece of it <laughs> right. do you know what i mean do you know what i mean well so I, I mean I, you're right to wonder because no not everyone believes or agrees that <laughs> that this is an imminent threat. Um, but the other piece is, you know, this isn't low-income people that are out buying on the beach, right? Because we can't afford to. Folks like that that are able to buy these big mansions and areas that are going to be underwater, they'll be fine. When all of this, you know, <laughs> whatever happens in the next 15, 20 years, they're going to be fine. They have the funds to be fine. Um, it's it's low-income people, working people that are the ones that are going to that are going to get hit the hardest and that are already getting hit the hardest. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's why I'm, um, I, I, I'm, I'm always looking for ways, um, you know, like who needs to be convinced of what, and I, and you see something like that and you really think, wow, they, I don't know even how to, to talk to these people, I guess just, you know, because these are second and third homes for the most part, um, they're just, you know, like, as you said, whatever happens, they can, they can get themselves out of, you know, whatever happens. And then it'll be poor and working people that just get, I guess, flooded out. Um, 
Professor Perez, um, do you? I, I, I'm interested uh, to wonder, um, sort of, what other what other aspects of your research that you think tie into sort of the political aspect of this, um, and what have you sort of been working on lately? Uh, well, I can certainly address uh, that, but I hope I could circle back and and make a comment or two based on discussion that you and Medina were having, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely, please. Uh, also, by all means. Uh, well, I, you know, when you sort there's sort of a gross irony in the images that we see uh, when you see these homes being built, even to this day in Rehoboth or other places, when those are also the places that sea level rise predictions are some of the worst in the country. And you wonder, you know, why this is happening. Well, there's a lot of reasons why, and, and some of the most fundamental have to do with the fact that uh, no one's stopping them. So, you know, communities are still being built in flood zones, and the 100-year flood zone is now, at least among academics and, and planners that I'm familiar with, at, at least, uh, just an illusion. You know, there's a recent article I saw the headline, you know, 100-year 100-year flood zones, those communities are going to flood every, every one to 30 years and things like that. So it does beg the question, you know, uh, how can that happen? And partly because people are, are being allowed to do it. Um, a builder who's going to make money on uh, building a new home near Hoboth isn't going to say no uh, to building someone's house. And so you know, a lot of this has to do with zoning and the way that we control where communities are built. And as you can imagine, in a state like Delaware, particularly along the eastern shore, uh, those areas are one of the one of the bigger, if not biggest, I can't say for certain, but one of the bigger uh, sources of economic prosperity for the state. So, you know, it, when you allow people uh, to build in those places, then you're going to continue to see those sorts of issues. And it does make us wonder why, because in in my view, and I'm, I'm quoting from an article I saw the other day, you know, all roads lead to retreat. Sea level rise predictions, even the early bathtub models for the state of Delaware for different communities, uh, used the year 2100 as a barometer for, uh, say, a long-term sea level rise issue at half a meter, one meter, one and a half meters. And you can still look at those data online, and uh, they're incredible when you see even you know, 80 years from now, single generation from now, uh, what areas at high tide or what they call mean high or high tide will be literally underwater, at least to some degree. Uh, and those are areas that we've all driven through or know about or walk through or bike through. And <clears throat> so it really begs, it really begs the question, uh, as you both were talking about before, who sees this as an imminent threat and what kind of timeline? Because it isn't just about these bathtub models for year 2100, we have to realize also that we're talking about sea level rise that is in progress for centuries. And so this isn't just a, you know, a, a problem that we're thinking about using these, I don't want to say uh, arbitrary, but these you know, timeframes that aren't realistic uh, when we talk about the fact that sea level rise is going to continue to happen, if not even for a thousand years. Uh, and so, you know, that's one point that I wanted to make is there's sort of a gross irony in seeing that happening versus communities that you were talking about, say, along the east side of, of Wilmington and South Wilmington that come up against the water. Those areas have dire predictions for uh, sea level rise flooding. And those are also areas that have historically had uh, legacy contaminants. So some of my research in the past that has tried to address that issue, I've worked with soil scientists, economists, and others in tandem where they looked at uh, contaminant mobility. So for example, some of my colleagues were looking at how soil that has arsenic in it as a legacy contaminant, uh, how that arsenic might become mobile with repeated water inundation. And their findings are beginning to suggest that under certain conditions, arsenic becomes mobile. And these are communities where this has been in the soil for you know 100 years ever since the industrialization really took place at a wide scale in places like Wilmington on the east side. So not only are those communities been bearing the, the brunt of environmental uh, issues and contamination and exposure, what we might call frontline communities, but they're also communities that are now feeling the double whammy of climate change impacts. Uh, so there's sort of a gross irony and if you look at those two pictures, you know, one at the northern end of the state and one at the, the southern end. Yeah, you, you, put, you put poison in the ground um... And then you flood everybody out with poisoned water. That's that's um, fairly bleak. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, 
and again, I, I, I think, and I've, we've talked about this uh, on this show a couple of times, um, there was just, and I think they're building it, some sort of like um, coal, coal uh, residue or, or some kind of processing of, of, uh, of coal ash or some kind of ash, and they're going to put that plant uh, in Southbridge as well. And, I'm t- and it's just, uh, as, as you said, no one's stopping anybody from doing anything. Um, and I'm hoping that we can stop them quickly and then start to move into, you know, some of the things that will ameliorate at least the worst of the worst, you know, soon. Because I feel, as you all do, that um, the, the time frame is, is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. I will say that in places like Southridge, you know, there is community activism where people do try and address these issues in public meetings and with Denric. But, you know, that sort of momentum has to be maintained, and it's very difficult to maintain that. So you have a handful of community leaders that have been involved for decades, and then the the sort of momentum will come and go with the different issues. And if there isn't a sustained momentum, then generally speaking, you tend to forget about things, and all of a sudden, whatever was planned uh, actually happens, and, and life goes on, so to speak. So that's, that's one of the issues. And, and, you know, folks have to give their own time and energy and money and stress and, and psychological and physical energy to deal with these issues, whereas in other communities, uh, they don't. And it's very difficult to maintain that momentum. But I'll also say that things like the wetland revitalization in South Wilmington, that is an initiative that is designed to uh, take water from the stormwater and flooded water from the adjacent area and uh, allow it to go through a process of filtering, natural filtration, and then ultimately be released into uh, the Christina. So there, there are environmental positives that come with that in addition to any, say, maybe health benefits you get from using the park. But in, at least in my opinion, in my view, the focus has been entirely too much on the engineering and not necessarily on what the social outcomes are because the, the social structural sources of the reason why people in South Wilmington and other places were dealing with environmental issues uh, disproportionately to begin with are the same forces that uh, can drive them out of an environment that's being cleaned up. So that, that's, that's something that you know, concerns me is that we, we tend to have a focus on environmental conditions, on the engineering that is, that is too singular, too narrow-minded in that regard, and absent of the other policy, it can actually move people away from the environmental amenities being regenerated for them. So that, you know, that's something that I thought is, is, is very important to bring up. And, and if I may, one other point that you were talking about with renewable energy very briefly, is that I think that this is an excellent component, not only of you know, Medina's uh, paper, but it's also part of the you know, more controversial aspect of it that came from, um, from Representative Ocasio-Cortez is whether or not to think about net zero clean energy or renewable energy. And in, in my view, the renewable energy approach is absolutely the best approach because net zero is, and you know, putting prices on carbon emissions and all of that have uh, some benefits, but generally speaking, the places that produce those say carbon emissions are adjacent to minoritized and poor communities. So even if we have sort of a net zero approach, those specific local communities are still gonna be impacted by those industries. Whereas renewable energy wouldn't do that. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's a really excellent point of, of Medina's uh, paper. Excellent. Um, but uh, let's, you, you mentioned uh, evas- uh, invasive spe- species. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm perked up because uh, we have these, uh, these lantern flies and I'm out there. It's every day in the back garden. It's a massacre. I'm I'm massacring everyone I can I can get my I can find. Uh, Nurse Susan has uh, had specimens in a jar because she found out that like the state wanted to maybe possibly you know look at them. So we're like you know we're on this lanternfly sort of situation. But um, if you want to talk about uh, that aspect of it too, because I think there's all of these different sort of um, results or outcomes from climate changes that people really don't think about that are going to just add to sort of the suffering and misery of the whole thing if we don't do anything about it. So I'm interested in, uh, in what you had to say about that. Um, yeah, sure. So one of the aspects of our plan is to require every public owned property have a native pollinator garden. 
Um, and the importance of that is, like you said, we have invasive species. We have invasive plants and we have invasive um, like insects and things, birds. Um, so having native um, plants planted as pollinator gardens would help to um, increase the amount of native species that we have that are really important to the environment and ecosystem. So like I'm sure a lot of people have heard of the Save the Bees movement and how we're like a lot of bees are going extinct and, and they're a huge part of not just you know our environment but our food system. Um, and so like a couple weeks ago we have we have kind of like a makeshift pollinator garden just because we don't um, spray like uh, what is it called? You know, weed killer and stuff like that because a right. lot of what we call weeds are really, you know, native plants that we don't know what to do with, but the native, you know, native insects do. So I was sitting out in the backyard just watching like honeybees that I don't remember seeing as a kid, um, you know, perched on different flowers and going from flower to flower. And so that, that makes me happy. And I mean, granted, I'm a bit of a tree hugger, but it's really important that our state is setting standards for um, protecting our environment because the last thing we want is, you know, we get through this climate crisis and then we don't have honeybees. We don't have other important insects that help pollinate our, our food and things like that. I don't know if you guys yeah. have seen um, Interstellar, but Matthew I had, he had to go to outer space, you know, because they couldn't grow anything on Earth. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's, there's so many of these little things that people just don't appreciate. Um, I think the the, uh, the bee thing i think people because of the the uh the force behind it and it kind of became a thing and i think people sort of understood oh that they pollinate the other plants and that's how we that's how farmers grow our food so it's sort of easy for people to understand but there's there's a lot of these um there's a lot of these problems that come um as everything sort of warms whether it's evasive species or bringing up you know poisons in the ground bringing up who knows, you know, stuff that's been frozen in ice for, you know, 50,000 years. And don't um, forget uh, pandemics. That's uh, yeah. something that people don't talk about a lot. Yeah. But if you think this is bad, wait till some of the climate-driven pandemics start coming up. Yeah, if there's, if there's climate-driven ones that, you know, we are lucky now, at least, you know, I call it lucky. But to be able to, although we're not taking the steps to do it, we're in a situation now where we could address this a little bit better. But, you know, when, when there's sort of catastrophes and chaos all over the place um, and then everybody starts getting sick, it's just going to compound. Um, I, I wonder, uh, and, and you know, Professor Perez alluded to it, I think, when he mentioned that the, when these projects are undertaken, the focus is on just engineering and that's it. And I don't think that that's a coincidence, um, because as I said in, in uh, earlier, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that this work was done in Southbridge once other development was done in partnership with, you know, the largest, you know, private landowner in the city. Um, I I don't, you know, these things seem to coincide with either other de private development, and so it's public infrastructure to support the private development, or the development itself is is privatized in a way to either pass the, the the public good to the private hands or to pass the redevelopment of it uh, into private profit, and so we get situations where uh, you know, as Professor Perez said, really the only or the or the, the highest priority impact is just design and construction and engineering with uh, with no other sort of things that are taken uh, you know that are that are looked at. Um, I wonder, Professor Perez, if you could expand on that a little bit, because I, I, it's something we harp on in here and we try to make these connections between like this, uh, you know, just environmental justice and infrastructure with, you know, trying to do it through a process that we, is, is usually a lose-lose for us. Uh, <clears throat> well, that also is a complicated issue, um, as these all are. I will say that the, with my, based on my experience and, you know, uh, if you haven't already, I, I apologize. I'm not that familiar with your podcast, but if you haven't already had uh, folks from the community of Southridge on the show, I'd definitely encourage that. Um, the so speaking from my experience and my research in the community, which is 
I've been uh, going into the community and meeting people and going to civic association meetings and things like that for a, about seven years, six to seven years. Uh, so speaking on my experience based on that, the uh, revitalized wetland was a, a was an idea that came out of a, a 2006 comprehensive plan that was created by the community in tandem with uh, the city of Wilmington and others. And so the it was a community idea to take this uh, disamenity and turn it into something that could help control flooding. And so in, in that regard, it uh, certainly is something that shows uh, a degree of agency in driving the future of the community. But the, the, the problem, in my view, is that uh, over time, the focus on the engineering and the lack of focus on the uh, potential social and economic impacts will, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm leaning towards this idea of potential displacement, but they could very much uh, run in tandem with, like you said, things that are occurring around the community of Southbridge, which could create problems for the for the residents, the current residents of Southbridge in terms of potential displacement. So even though the wetland was something that community members uh, proposed back in 2006, and it took, you know, 15-ish years for that ultimately to come to fruition. I do think that uh, it, it gave a certain degree of agency towards the future of the community uh, in that plan. But at the same time, in my, in my opinion, based on my own experiences, uh, that agency has been lost a little bit because of a lack of focus on affordable housing, rent control, and other things in the area that could change with the implementation of the development in the riverfront, as well as the condominiums that are uh, being built along A Street, uh, very close to the community via, uh, if I understand it correctly, via uh, the use of Opportunity Zone uh, uh, tax abatements and so forth. So, you know, you can look at this in a variety of ways. And one narrative is if you're standing on A Street and looking at these condominiums, you could look over the Christina and then look over the wetland and have a really nice view of both directions. Um, and some people argue that that could spur economic activity in the community. I'm really not sure how, uh, in my own opinion, how uh, condominiums that to my knowledge don't have any kind of affordable housing within them for the local community of Southbridge could actually benefit the community uh, remains to be seen. But all of those things, you know, have worked together in a way, as you uh, said explicitly, that don't seem coincidental. Uh, my hope is that the long-term plan is for uh, an equitable outcome for the Southbridge community as well. But as you suggest, if if we don't if we don't look at these things ahead of time, uh, in my own research and my own experience in reading, the market takes over. And so if we're not looking at policies and plans in place that can help address people who uh, won't be able to afford rent in the area or, you know, the sort of predatory home buying that will happen and people start to flip homes and invite in uh, folks from outside the community who aren't historic, you know, part of a historically black community, et cetera. Um, that, would be problematic because you're talking about a, a community that's been there for a long time and has a very unique identity that could be dismantled over time because of the uh, economic forces of the engineering in the area regarding the environment with a lack of attention to the social outcomes. Yeah. So before we close out, um, I want to get uh, an update uh, from Medina and, and, and Carl. Um, you touched on it earlier, Medina, and, and I think it's so true. I talk about it all the time, and, and I just uh, I want to drive the point home. In September on primary day, uh, there's going to be a lot of choices for a lot of people to make. Um, if you're listening to this already, you, you already know what to do. Um, but we can have nice things here. Um, there's a lot of people, including Medina, who are leading that charge. Um, and I was interested to, to see that over the last couple of weeks, um, you guys for your campaign have started to interact a little bit more, um, you know, social distance, masked up. Uh, but 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 you were out uh, on primary day on, on presidential primary day uh, and you've done some other sort of social distancing stuff. 
Um, how has that been working in the community? Um, how have some of the online stuff that you've been doing and ramping up, has that been working? And, uh, you know, how do you feel going into the home stretch? I feel good. I feel good. I don't know how Carl's feeling, but um, I think I think things are looking really good. Um, just to clarify, we are not doing in-person, like, campaigning with folks who are not already out. <laughs> um, right, right, So, like, right. we went to, like, polling locations on the primary day because we figure, okay, if people are willing to vote in person, then hopefully they'll be cool talking to us and, and uh, things like that. But besides that, we've been phone calling, texting, um, writing letters. We are starting up a postcard campaign. Um, so we've been contacting folks still, and I think it's looking really good, to be honest. Um, I, I'm trying to run like I'm losing, but it's feeling good. Um, Carl, what do you think? What I think is that um, we need more money. We need more people volunteering. Uh, so if you can give any money to Medina, uh, we need it because we're running against an incumbent who has a 20-year war chest um, and a lot of connections that we don't have uh, and are going to be able to raise a lot of money that we can't. Uh, and so we need every single dollar we can to make up with that. We need it because um, he's going to outraise us, but we need to at least raise the money that we need um, to run the ads, send the mailers, all that stuff that we need to win. Um, and since, you know, we can't canvas because of the coronavirus, uh, we're making phone calls, uh, and that is volunteer intensive. Um, we want to try to talk to as many people as we can, confirm as many voters as we can, because this is a low turnout district. Um, it, during this presidential primary, it actually had the highest turnout in its history. Um, but for reference, that turnout was about 23%. So um, we would not be running a progressive campaign if we weren't focusing on people who don't really vote that often, people who aren't really included in the political process, younger people, people of color um, who historically just don't vote in primaries, uh, but are the type of people that have the direct material interest in the things that we're trying to do. Um, but to get to those people, we need volunteers, uh, who to make phone calls, send texts, send postcards, all that stuff. So that's that's what I think. I, I had a feeling you were going to wow. say that. <laughs> He's always always be pitching. Yeah. Very shameless good. plugs. I love it. Hey, I I'll do a shameless plug right now. If uh, if you like this uh, podcast, you're probably listening on Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com/slash The Highlands Bunker. You could become a member. Five, ten dollars a month. You could support our work. You could find out all of this cool stuff that's going on. Hey, why not uh, Why not do it? $10, I think, is the best uh, level to be at. I'm not going to say why, but the people who are $10 members do know why. Um, I, I, I want to thank you guys uh, for joining, um, Professor Perez uh, and Medina Wilson-Anton. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Of course. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the discussion. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right, everybody. We'll speak to you soon. Left is best. <laughs>